everyone, you're listening to Bionic Bug Podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I discuss the latest news about emerging technology, read chapters from Bionic Bug, and explore the real-life technologies featured in my novel. We'll discuss where fiction meets reality in the future. Hey everyone, welcome back to Bionic Bug Podcast. You're listening to episode number seven. This is your host, Natasha Bajma, fiction author, futurist, and national security expert. First off, I have a personal update. Project Gecko, book two in the Laura, Laura Kingsley series, came back from my editor last Monday. Good news, he likes it. Um, that's always a relief to hear. Uh, expected news, we can make it even better. Um, as many of you know, I'm working with a developmental editor, Clark Chamberlain. He's the kind of editor who helps authors with plot, character arcs, and development, and any other story elements. It's an expensive part of the process, but I find it to be an extremely smart investment in my future as an author. Uh, He's helping me see my strengths and weaknesses as an author and helps me bring out the former and improve the latter. I'm also revamping my website to prepare for my podcast launch. I bought a new WordPress theme from Artisan to make my site look more professional. I was so nervous about activating the theme, you'd think that I was launching a nuclear weapon. I waited for an entire week. Um, It was really kind of silly, the amount of anxiety I expended over it and how many people I asked, you know, how do I do this? Do you know, can I do this? Um, So last Sunday, I finally pressed activate and I've been working to leverage the many cool features of the new theme. I have to say artisan support has been so amazing. Um, So I highly recommend anyone considering Artism themes for updating the look of their website. In fact, I've interacted several times with Yavi, the co-founder of Artism themes. So go check them out. Okay, let's talk tech news. Warning. Today I'm getting up on my soapbox and I'm giving you a fair warning. (laughs) I would remind you that these are solely my opinions. You're free to disagree with me and I'm happy to have a debate um, if need be. So the headline for this week is from the New York Times on May 14 by Emily Baumgartner. As DIY gene editing gains popularity, someone is going to get hurt. Ooh, sounds exciting. The article opens by saying after a virus was created from mail-order DNA, scientists are sounding the alarm about the genetic tinkering carried out in garages and living rooms. Across the country, biohackers, hobbyists, amateur geneticists, students, and enthusiasts are practicing gene editing concerning some bioterrorism experts. Okay, so of course it's interesting, exciting to see the New York Times cover one of the current issues I find extremely important, but this title and intro are examples of sensationalism at their worst. Even if it raises some valid and important issues, this article was poorly researched and is incredibly misleading. It appears that the journalist hand-selected a few bad examples of scientists behaving badly and scary expert quotes to support her bias that DIY bio is dangerous. And that is a disservice to humanity. Am I exaggerating? No, actually I'm not. Ms. Baumgartner states in her article, authorities in the United States have been hesitant to undertake actions that could squelch innovation or impinge on intellectual property. So yeah, that's true, and there's good reason for that. Why? The majority of innovation in biotechnology is going to come from these startups. 
Breaking news, government and big industry are no longer leaders in developing cutting-edge technology. So, of course, the U.S. government is hesitant to come down and control all of this innovation because that's where cures for diseases are going to come. And I think if you're sick, you want those cures, right? It also reminds me that Microsoft and Apple were started in garages and they were working with technology that would also change the world in profound ways. The internet was originally created to allow university researchers to communicate and share information. And even though cyberspace has its risks and they're growing, most would argue that our lives have vastly improved as a result of this interconnectedness. In fact, the U.S. has become the world leader in technology because of startup innovations coming out of Silicon Valley and other technology hubs. So who's to say that the next cure for disease won't come from the same type of garage? What if we could finally understand where, when, and how, and the whys of cancer? What if we could solve the diabetes epidemic with gene editing? As you can see, you know, sensationalist headlines could lead to a backlash in DIY bio, and this is not what we want. This is not what the government wants. So yes, we need to ensure adequate safety and security practices across the DIY bio community and make sure that there's a culture of responsibility. But Ms. Baumgartner draws strong links where there are none. And her article, at worst, could mislead the general public about DIY bio and create a backlash against the community that will contribute to improving society. And this is not what journalistic reporting is supposed to do. This is an op-ed. This is not balanced reporting, not the kind I would expect from a newspaper like the New York Times in in an era of fake news. Okay, let's discuss some of my problems with the article. Uh, This is gonna be a long uh, soapbox. The article starts by referencing research conducted by scientists at the University of Alberta in Canada to piece together the genome of the horsepox virus. Over the course of six months, these scientists ordered fragments of DNA of the virus, polio, uh, horsepox virus, by mail, and then put them together to recreate the virus in a lab environment. The project costs about $100,000. For most of us, that sounds like a lot of money, but for science, this is very, very cheap. So for my non-science listeners, we're gonna go on a bit of a detour with some background information. So it really starts with the fact that all living organisms have a DNA code referred to as its genome. And today we are able to cheaply sequence genomes and individual gene sequences found within genomes. Sequencing refers to the reading of the DNA code that makes up the genome for living organisms. So how does this work? Um, When a genome is sequenced, the DNA code is read and then it's eventually converted into ones and zeros. This is the digital binary code that can be processed by computers. This data is increasingly referred to as genomic data. It can be stored in databases, used in computer modeling programs, and even transmitted by email. So yes, we can today send DNA code by email. (laughs) That's uh, scary, yes. In fact, there's a growing catalog of genetic information on the internet, um, and that databases that contain gene sequences, gene functions, and even the full genomes of organisms. So gene synthesis does somewhat the opposite of sequencing. It translates the digital code into the original DNA sequence or genome to physical DNA material 
that can then be used in a lab to produce the source living organism. So what that means is that researchers no longer need a physical source of DNA to manipulate or study it. Instead, they can find a sequence online and have it chemically synthesized by a growing number of companies. So I like to think about this as Jurassic Park 2.0. In the novel movie, scientists extracted DNA from dinosaur blood found in mosquitoes preserved for millions of years in amber. In this movie, scientists needed a physical sample to clone dinosaurs. So now imagine all you need is a computer file containing the genome of a living organism. And so that's what these researchers did. The Canadian researchers were conducting their experiment with the aim of developing better vaccines. They inferred the makeup of the horsepox virus from the published literature. They ordered the sequences from a synthesis company and pasted the gene sequences together to form the entire genome. They inserted this DNA into a living cell and recreated the virus. Sounds more simple than it is. It's actually not that simple. I don't think I could do it. When they published the results, this caused a heated debate throughout the scientific community about the conduct of responsible science. Horsebox isn't harmful to humans, but the implications of the study for national security were profound and indicated that making the variola virus, which causes smallpox, could be cheap and easy. Um, smallpox was formally eradicated in 1980, and there are only a few known physical samples of the disease stored in the U.S. and Russia. So this is a profound uh, development, um, and so there's, there's a reason why people are really excited and concerned about this. I'm also concerned about this type of research, and I'm concerned about bad guys having access to the results online. But let me be clear. This research was conducted by formerly trained scientists at a university in Canada and has nothing to do with the DIY bio community. Also, this is actually the nature of how science is conducted. Scientists share the results so that others can test them and build upon their research. This is how we cure diseases. It's also sometimes how we do bad things. So this is the same process that led to the development of nuclear weapons in the 1940s. And for those of you who don't know, nuclear weapons and proliferation has been my specialty for, I don't know, 18 years or so. So I'm going to take a slight tangent into history, um, into the 1930s. James Chadwick discovered the existence of the neutron, a subatomic particle with no charge. He found it um, in the nucleus of atoms in 1933, and this became the key to unlocking the energy stored inside the atom. So he published his results, and in 1934, Enrico Fermi read his results, and he decided, um, he was an Italian physicist, he decided to conduct an experiment where he bombarded every element on the periodic table, do you remember that, with neutrons. So previously, scientists were using protons, which are positively charged subatomic particles, but they would often rebound off of the positively charged atoms. It's called the electromagnetic force. If you play with magnets, then you know positive repels positive. Um, so Fermi's working on this experiment, and when he finally got to uranium, something interesting happened. He assumed that he had transmuted uranium, which means that he had transformed it into a heavier element, but he had actually caused a uranium atom to fission, to split into two, releasing smaller elements, neutrons, and energy. And this is essentially the basis of nuclear weapons and nuclear energy. 
Nuclear physicists around the world studied his experiment over and over and over and over. And eventually, Otto Hahn, Lisa Meitner, and Fritz Strassmann concluded in 1938 that Enrico Fermi had produced the first nuclear fission. That finding sent a ripple throughout the scientific community and led to Germany's early interest in nuclear weapons. So I hope I you get the point. Um, I am concerned about the horse pox experiment and what it could mean for national security. But again, this is how science works. And the main difference here, though, is that we're conducting science in the digital age, not during the 1940s when scientists had to travel overseas to conferences by boat for three weeks to learn about developments in their field. But basically, communication that occurs at the speed of light over the internet. And now we're even getting to the point where the physical is now expressed in digital form. And that's what's fundamentally interesting about the, the horse pox article. Okay, deep breath. And back to the article. <laughs> I, I promise this would be long. Miss Baumgartner writes, many experts agree that it would be very difficult for amateur biologists of any stripe to design a killer virus on their own. She suggests, however, that it is only a matter of time before this is possible. Okay. Yes, the risks will increase in the future as the volume of genetic information, knowledge, and capabilities increase. However, why would amateur biologists want to make a killer virus in the first place? And here, Ms. Baumgartner is confusing capability with intent. So in the past, when we talked about weapons of mass destructions, we assumed that capability, so if you had a dangerous pathogen and you weren't authorized to have it, that capability su suggested something about your intent. It meant that you're, you're potentially a bad person. But today, we're talking increasingly about technology that is so dual use that having it, working on it, suggests nothing about your intent. Zero. Zilch. And actually, most scientists who are, are working with this um, have very good intent to try to improve society and come up with cures for diseases. So just because we can do all sorts of bad things with emerging technology doesn't mean that more people will do bad things. And that's, that's a false link. There's another issue, and I've thought about it for a long time because um, since 9-11, we've been talking about WMD terrorism and that it's a matter of um, not if, but when. And yet we don't see it. And I, I ask this question all the time, you know, why not? And I think it's because you still need a certain amount of tacit expertise uh, for doing WMD, developing WMD. And that is just requires extra time. It requires a safe haven. It requires um, an additional risk of detection and potentially health uh, harm to the group. So there are a lot of reasons why non-state actors don't choose WMD. But one of the, I think, big challenges here is that finding a scientist with sufficient skills and a passionate desire to do bad things is rare. And I think this comes down to the character of scientists in general. It just doesn't go with scientists. These are the types of people who are so curious about how things work that they want to spend their lives understanding the fundamentals of matter and life and advancing our collective knowledge. Scientists like to know things and they get an incredible amount of joy from knowing things. I know I'm a scientist. I'm not a hard scientist. I'm a political scientist. I love knowing things. These are the people who are not typically the sort to be so profoundly angry at the world that they want to destroy it. Do you see the contradiction there? 
Okay, time out, confession time. I'm a fiction writer. Bionic Bug involves a rogue scientist leveraging gene editing to assist with his revenge plot against the U.S. government. But I did understand that for a scientist to cross this line, I needed to establish sufficient motive. I needed to make his actions appear reasonable from his point of view. And this is fiction. Okay, so let's turn to reality for an instructive example. Take Um Shinrikyo, a Japanese cult. They tried to develop biological weapons in the 1990s, um, primarily to bring about Armageddon. Yeah, that's interesting. They eventually succeeded in using chemical weapons, the nerve agent sarin, to cause death and injury, most famously on the Tokyo subway in 1995. But every single time that they tried to use biological weapons, they failed. Several members of Um Shinrikyo were, in fact, trained scientists. So here's the anomaly, right? Scientists who um, are curious about life and how it works, but they also want to harm, harm things. So um, the group also benefited from an estimated billion dollars worth of assets, a safe haven in Japan. Religious groups benefited from a very high level of protection from interference by law enforcement. These scientists gained access to two vaccine strains of Bacillus anthracis. This is the bacteria that causes anthrax. They got it from a veterinary lab. Uh, they also tried to grow botulinum toxin, which is produced by the bacteria Clostridium botulinum. They attempted to use biologic weapons on at least 10 or more occasions, and each time they failed to produce any illnesses. And most likely because they failed to acquire and produce a virulent, so deadly or lethal or disease-causing strain of the bacteria. All right. So there you have an example from reality of a group with access to technical expertise and unlimited, nearly unlimited resources, and they couldn't do it. All right. Okay. There you go. Okay. Back to the issue at hand. Ms. Baumgartner's piece is supposed to be about the DIY bio community, but she really didn't do her research. And so far, I haven't really discussed the DIY bio community. Why? Because she's not talking about it. She includes a quote from the FBI and mentions them befriending biohackers, but doesn't directly mention the FBI's extensive outreach effort to the DIY bio community led by my friend and colleague Ed Yu. All it would take is a simple Google search to learn about this. She doesn't mention that FBI WND coordinators are working to raise awareness across the DIY bio community to report any suspicious activity they come across in their action, interactions. Yeah, I can see why the DIY bio community might be initially nervous about the FBI, but it has been a successful outreach effort, and it works because almost all DIY bio biologists are doing biology because they love science, not because they intend to harm others. So why doesn't she cover this more in her reporting? She released her article on Twitter with a provocative tweet about Dr. Josiah Zainer, who holds a PhD in molecular biophysics at the University of Chicago. She tweets, That celebrity biohacker who straps a GoPro camera on his forehead and streams experiments on himself from his garage? Yeah, even he's concerned. Okay. Dr. Zainer, a former NASA scientist, is best known for injecting himself with gene therapy to make his muscles bigger. Okay, we all know that. Last year, he admitted that he regretted doing it, and he hoped that it would not lead to dangerous experimentation. So let's let that be, okay? Um, he is a trained scientist. He is a company co-founder founder of the ODIN, 
and he is working to change the world for the better. So let's let's let the mistakes be in the past. What's interesting, however, is that throughout this article, despite referring to him as a NASA scientist, former NASA scientist, and despite his PhD, which is very obvious from internet research, she refers to him repeatedly as Mr. Zayner. Why? I'm not sure. I'll let you think about that. She even quotes his colleague, Dr. George Church from Harvard, as saying, if they're willing to inject themselves with hormones to make their muscles bigger, you can imagine they'd be willing to test more powerful things, he added. Anyone who does synthetic biology should be under surveillance, and anyone who does it without a license should be suspect. Okay, this quote was most likely taken out of context, and just to throw something out there, throw a grenade on this, a simple Google search reveals that Dr. Church is listed as a business and science advisor for the Odin, the company founded and run by the so-called celebrity biohacker. Why does Ms. Baumgartner pit these two scientists against each other in a journalistic article when they're not actually working against each other? Hmm, maybe she prefers writing fiction. Okay, all right. I told you this was a soapbox. Ms. Baumgartner does raise an important feature of many emerging technologies, but biology is not alone. In fact, there is a vibrant 3D printing and drone DIY community. But instead, in focus, instead of focusing on gene editing, we could talk about 3D printed plastic guns or the use of off-the-shelf commercial drones to deliver illegal drugs across borders. But disease does inspire such fear in the hearts of general public, it's definitely more clickbaity. So let's put a pin in that for a second. What is the DIY bio community and what are they doing? A growing number of people around the world are doing biology as a hobby. Essentially, they're tinkering with biology the same way Steve Jobs and Bill Gates tinkered with their computers. And we might have thought bad things about them back then, too. With the assistance of the Internet, however, which facilitates communication and sharing, DIY bio biology has become a movement of sorts. And what makes it special is that it can take place in shared lab spaces, despite being independent from government, academia, or industry. So this is citizen science. Everyone is allowed to participate and contribute regardless of expertise and training. These amateur biologists are splicing DNA, reprogramming bacteria to create genetically engineered organisms. They often meet in shared lab spaces, but they can also to have access to more advanced equipment, but they can also work from their homes. Ms. Baumgartner attempted to write a piece about the DIY bio community, but fails to understand it even at a superficial level. As a result, her article will inspire fear rather than intrigue. And this is not the balanced reporting that I expect from the New York Times. Okay, I'm getting off my soapbox now. I hope you enjoyed hearing me all fiery and passionate. Uh, if you enjoy the show and would like to support my time and costs of producing the show for only a few dollars a month, please go to www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Natasha Bajma. Let's pick up back where we left off last week in Bionic Bug. Lara stopped by her friend Maggie's lab to drop off the beetle. Maggie knows about the DARPA research uh, on strapping microelectronics on insects to control their flight. 
She also notices something peculiar about the beetle's mouthpiece. She thinks it might have been genetically modified to allow it to bite humans and transmit disease. Guilty, but I'm a fiction author. Detective Sanchez shows up and pulls Lara out of the lab to the police station for questioning. Let's find out what happens next. Chapter 7, The Police Station. The interrogation room at the police station in Capitol Hill barely fit the small wooden table, two metal chairs, and the people sitting in them. Lara shifted in the unforgiving seat. The table wobbled just a bit when she tried to rest her arms on it, so she left her hands folded in her lap. Everything in the room seemed designed with discomfort in mind. Even the air itself, stale and thick, felt like the work of some maniacal interrogation genius. She glanced at the rust-stained vent above the door, where a tiny paper tag, like the kind they put on cadavers, fluttered against the musty, lukewarm air. Beads of sweat rolled down Lara's cheek onto the table. Detective Mario Sanchez glowered at her with his dark brown eyes, which matched the five o'clock stubble on his face. His muscular arms were tightly folded across his chest. He'd been like that for five minutes. Lara had learned in a business class at MIT not to speak first if she wanted to win a negotiation. But this wasn't a negotiation. This was a game, and she was done playing. I know a good repairman who could fix your AC problem. Santos jumped from his chair and slammed the case file for Sully's death on the table in front of Lara. What do you know? He yelled, his face tight and his eyes narrowed. This isn't a joke, Miss Kingsley. He beat his fist on the table. You were at the scene of the murder and then you left. Looks awful suspicious from where I'm standing. Lara watched as he railed against her, pointed his finger in her face and made a lot of noise. It was all for dramatics, but even if his temper had been genuine, Lara didn't care. She'd been through this drill with a detective before, and like the last time, she'd done nothing wrong. Well, except for taking the beetle, and the key, and the newspaper clippings. Stealing evidence from a scene of interest in a police investigation was technically against the law. Of course, she'd eventually hand them over. But right now, the only thing that mattered was solving Sally's murder. And to do that, she needed clues. Sanchez could keep her there for hours if she didn't figure something out. He still held a grudge from years ago when Lars' involvement in a case had fudged his plans to make an arrest. He'd never forgiven her for the shit he'd gotten from his boss. This time, however, she had critical information and specialized skills to help solve his case. She figured the D.C. police didn't have the resources to have a drone expert on hand, and in fact she was banking on it. Otherwise, she'd be in trouble. The hard metal chair made her thighs sore, so she stuck her hands under them for extra padding. She glanced at her reflection in, a, in the one-way mirror on the wall behind the detective. Her long, blonde hair looked embarrassingly unkempt. Did I also forget to brush my hair this morning? Ugh, what about my teeth? As she reached up to smooth out her hair... Lara sensed a presence in the next room. Her intuition told her Commander Jameson was watching the showdown from his perch. Sanchez pounded his fist on the table again, bringing Lara out of her daze and returning her attention to the interrogation room. A muscle in Sanchez's jaw twitched repeatedly. Are you fucking listening to me? The detective screamed. He must have been shouting at her for several minutes now, but she'd spaced out. She continued to ignore him. 
His rants could take a while, and it was best to keep quiet until he finished. Or until I'm ready for the fight. Can I get a bottle of water? Lara asked sweetly, eyes wide and docile, shaking his head and putting both of his hands on the metal chair in front of him. The detective leaned toward her, making sure she looked into his fiery eyes. You're gonna tell me what you know now or later. Either way, you're fucking gonna cooperate with me. Cooperation? Oh, so you want me to cooperate with you now? Lara asked as she crossed her arms and raised an eyebrow. You come all the way out to Maryland with two police officers, treat me like I'm a person of interest in my friend's murder, and escort me to your cruiser under the threat of being handcuffed. If you were trying to put me in a cooperative mood, I gotta tell you, that was a big, fat fail. Miss Kingsley, we've tried to reach you for the past 24 hours, Sanchez rubbed his temples. We relayed multiple messages through your assistant asking you to come down to the station, and you never fucking showed. I never received any messages, Lara said. She waved a hand to dismiss his accusations. Besides, you saw my phone was dead when you picked me up. I was going to come by, but I had some personal things to take care of first. Like dumping the implicating evidence? Sanchez ground his teeth and squeezed the back of the metal chair so hard his knuckles turned white. Seriously? Lara rolled her eyes. Do you have any idea how much trouble you're in right now? I have an empty cell with your, cell with your name on it. Lara sat up straight and stared right at the mirror. I've never asked before, but last time we did this dance and you put me in jail, how did that work out for you? She raised a defined eyebrow at the detective. She could play this game too. You think you're special, don't you? Lara didn't respond. He took a stack of photos from the folder and spread them out across the table. Sully. His lifeless body filled each picture. You were there when it happened. Yes, Lara said, studying each photo, for a small clue that might, she might have missed. You knowingly left the scene of a crime. Why? She clenched her jaw tight and didn't reply. I don't like private investigators interfering with my cases. Lara looked up at him. Except, of course, when we do the work and you get the credit for solving the crime. Look. We can do this the easy way or the hard way, the detective said. The easy way is you cooperate with us fully without any conditions. If you choose the hard way, we'll file charges against you for obstruction of justice. And then it's another night in the fucking slammer. No FBI agents to bail you out this time. Lara chuckled. Don't try to bluff me. This isn't my first rodeo. You know full well those charges won't stick. I'm not required to assist you in your investigation. And I've done nothing to obstruct your case. It was obvious. He was playing hardball with her. Most likely as a show for his boss behind the one-way mirror. Jameson despised her even more than Sanchez did. As the detective took the seat across from her, a vein popped out of his reddened neck. He was clearly not accustomed to women of her ilk. She wiped his sweaty forehead with his sleeve. I've gotten under his skin. She looked over the photos again. What did you do with the remote control? Lara asked, mostly out of idle curiosity. What remote control? He rubbed his temples. The one I found at the scene next to Sully's body? Oh shit, had it gone missing? Why didn't I just let him run the interview? He glared at her intensely and enunciated every word. There was no remote control when we arrived. What do you mean? Lara asked, feeling the blood drain from her face. 
we found nothing resembling a remote control. Perhaps you're the one who took it from the crime scene. Sanchez's eyes narrowed. Lara scoffed. Why would I do that and then ask you about it? If my phone was charged, I'd show you. Here, I fucking charged it for you. He turned it on and tossed it to her. She caught the phone just in time and shot the detective an angry glare. The screen showed 47 missed calls and texts. Whoops. Ignoring them, she scrolled through the photo album on her smartphone and showed him pictures of the remote control at the scene. See? There's the remote on the ground next to Sally. I didn't take it. You can check the surveillance tapes at the ballpark, which will show me leaving the hallway empty-handed except for my motorcycle helmet and a baseball glove. Hell! Get a search, a warrant and search my apartment for all I care. You're barking up the wrong tree and wasting precious time. Meanwhile, Sally's killer is getting away. You're just trying to throw suspicious off yourself. That's utterly ridiculous, Lara said, her jaw clenched. Maybe your assistant took it from the scene. The detective fired back. Lara's eyes flashed with fury, but the notion gnawed at her. Did she know for certain Vic didn't take it? Please don't let him be right. Vic was the last person to see the remote. She told him to keep an eye on it, more than once. Hopefully he didn't take her order, literally. Lara wiped the sweat off her face. Would you like my help, or would you prefer to squander more time playing testosterone games in this hot box? Sanchez fell silent and shifted restlessly in his seat. He looked as if he were considering all his options. It might interest you to know that several FBI agents visited Sully's townhouse the night of his death. Lara dangled the teaser. The detective sat up straight in his chair. I've got you now. So, are we going to work as a team and cooperate? Sanchez cleared his throat. Okay, fine. Tell me about the FBI traipsing all over my crime scene. She knew he didn't like surrendering so easily. Lara looked at him directly in the eyes. So you're not going to try to arrest me or threaten me with charges? He nodded. And I have your word on that? You want me to get that in writing for you or something? Just give me your word. He let out an exasperated sigh and uncrossed his arms, leaning forward, trying to give her some sense of authenticity. Fine. You have my fucking word. Now just tell me what you know. From the beginning. Lara breathed a little easier and folded her hands on the table in front of her. She left out the parts where she pocketed potential evidence, but she told the detective how she found Sully just after the seventh inning stretch, how she wanted to find his killer, and went to Sully's townhouse to look for clues, how she had been the one to install his surveillance system, and finally how the FBI came over for some lighthouse cleaning. When she relayed the juicy details of the FBI's decontamination mission, the detective sat on the edge of his seat, listening intently to every word. He jotted something down on his notepad and then flipped back a few pages. He cleared his throat. Know anything about those cursed drones at the park? He asked. Not yet, but I suspect DARPA might have something to do with it, or at least know something about it. DARPA? My guys found a DARPA business card. Do you know what they do over there? Lara nodded. It's the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. They fund research on defense-related science and technology. Cutting-edge, futurist stuff. Maybe Sully was investigating something there. Did you find anything else? The detective asked. Lara retrieved the newspaper clippings and Sully's house keys and slid them across the table. You took these from the townhouse? Sanchez's nostrils flared. You know that... I know I crossed a line, Lara interrupted. But I'm only trying to help you. 
Sully handed me his keys right before he died, and he left those clippings for me in a hiding place only I would find. If you think I did it to hide evidence from you, then arrest me. The detective crossed his arms, glaring at her. What hiding spot? I found them under the case lining of his favorite revolver. Sanchez nodded, looking somewhat satisfied with the explanation. He let her indiscretion slide and read the newspaper articles slowly while she waited. If this Jan Spielman is still alive, he'd be 60-something by now. We'll see what we can find out. Anything else? Last chance to avoid trouble. You know how you found me at the lab? Laura asked. Yeah? Well, I also found... Well, it actually found me. Laura searched for the right words to tell him about the bionic bug, which was part machine, part nature, with possible genetic modifications. Um, I was in the bathroom and a large beetle landed on my head. A bug? Not the surveillance kind. A real bug? Well, it was no ordinary bug, Lara said, taking a serious tone. It wore a backpack. A backpack? Sanchez's tone became incredulous. Yeah, I know, it sounds crazy. And I suppose the bug also wore a hoodie and little sneakers, he smirked. Maybe it was late, not late to a night class at GWU. The, the detective laughed at his own joke. Lars stared at Sanchez until he quieted. Well, you're not too far off. The beetle wore a camera. The detective's eyes nearly bulged out of their sockets. Are you messing with me? Lars shook her head. No, she said firmly. Anyway, I took it to my entomologist friend at the University of Maryland. That's where you found me. She says it's a bionic bug, a beetle hooked up to a tiny electronics package that allows a human operator to control its flight patterns and receive video feed from a surveillance camera. She's going to take a closer look at it. Let me get this straight. You're telling me someone out there, Sanchez waved his hand around, is flying a beetle around with a fucking camera on its back? Lara nodded. She didn't have a heart to tell him about the genetic modifications and its potential for, di for disease transmission. That information would likely send him off the edge. She would wait for confirmation before stirring up things further. Suddenly, the door flew open and slammed against the wall behind her. Startled, Lara jumped in her seat. Sanchez glanced up expectantly at, the young, at a young lieutenant. Sorry, detective. We have preliminary autopsy results in the Sullivan case. I thought you'd want to review them right away. Thanks, Sanchez motioned for him to hand over the file. Uh, sir, this isn't the report. The medical examiner isn't quite ready to move forward. She wants to speak with you first. The detective threw his hands in her air. The examiner needs to do her fucking job. What does she expect me to do? Bring my pocket knife and remove a pancreas for her? Lara rolled her eyes. Boy, he sure thinks he's clever. Sir, she stumped on the cause of death. The lieutenant's voice quivered slightly. Well, not really on the cause. The victim died as of asphyxiation. But the medical examiner doesn't know why. She thinks it might be some sort of poison, and she's tested for everything she can think of. Lara recalled the seizure-like moments and the foaming around the mouth she'd seen right before Sally died. For her deployment to Afghanistan, she'd been trained on the full range of chemical and biological agents. Tell him to test for biological toxins. Maybe ricin or botulinum toxin. Doesn't sound like a typical homicide, the detective pondered audibly. Why do I always get the fucking weird cases? Turning to the lieutenant, he said, Have the medical examiner do the test and get me results ASAP. The lieutenant nodded nervously and closed the door quietly behind him. 
Ms. Kingsley, uh, this has been very helpful. The department could really use you on this case. Is that a formal request for assistance? Lara asked, grinning at the detective. His expression fell flat and remained static. The answer is yes. I'll be glad to help you out for the usual fee. Lara knew the payment would be would amount to small change, but anything would be better than nothing. Of course, she would have worked Sully's case for free, but the detective didn't need to know that. Sanchez nodded. One more question. Yes? Is your friend Maggie single? He grinned sheepishly. Okay, let's go behind the scenes. So I really love Chapter 7, and Detective Sanchez is one of my favorite characters. This scene introduces the back-and-forth tension between him and Lara, which will be an ongoing source of conflict and amusement in the series. Since I went on a bit of a rampage in my introduction, I didn't get to the other news headline from Futurism.com on May 16. It is entitled, This Cute Little Robot Fly is the First Without a Wire. So if you're following the story of Bionic Bug, you might have asked the question, why use live insects? And I, in previous episodes, I've elaborated on the advantages of using insects, but this article announces a new uh, game-changing development. Researchers at the University of Washington invented the RoboFly, the first wireless robot insect. The main obstacle to producing robotic insects comes down to energy. The flapping of wings consumes a huge amount of energy, and the small platforms are unable to carry their own energy supply. So that's always been the, the primary problem. These researchers have overcome this obstacle with a solar cell and laser. So I will include the link in my show notes and you can read about it there. That's all I have for this week. So I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Bionic Bug Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Natasha Bajma. See you next week.